What happens when somebody from a commercial real estate background dives headfirst into the vertical farming industry? Well, when that person is Dan Houston, he comes up with a very different approach. Because you'd be crazy. You'd be an absolute nutball to try and go and put a vertical farm in a skyscraper. Thankfully, I'm a nutball. And so is my team. We're all a bunch of crazy people. And we enjoy going, yeah, we did that. Dan came to the industry with the insight that commercial landlords are struggling to fill space. He started AgriPlay to develop a plug-and-play system for converting this space into urban vertical farms. That market has huge incentives. So what we had to do was create the technology stack that allowed us to effectively be just a different kind of tenant. Landlords don't have to consider this indoor farm as a permanent solution. So our system snaps in, and then it snaps out what they're done, and all they're left when we're done is upgraded base building space, which they traditionally want and use anyway. So what does it take to convert vacant office space into a vertical farm? And is it even economical to do so? Dan Houston of AgriPlay shares why he thinks their unique approach to vertical farming is worth watching on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, Ag Nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Before we dive into today's episode on building vertical farms in commercial properties, I'd like to recognize our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is the engine of Canada's agriculture industry, Calgary, Alberta. Located in the heart of Alberta's best-growing land, Calgary has it all. With more than 22 facilities in Alberta playing a critical role in ag research and innovation, Calgary is a hub for precision agriculture and agricultural technology. The Calgary region has proximity to customers, abundant primary agricultural commodities, and a growing cluster of value-added processing capacity. That's why multinational agribusiness leaders call Calgary home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you're welcome to join. Visit calgaryagbusiness.com to learn more, and thank you so much to Calgary Economic Development for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, one project I happen to know Calgary Economic Development is very excited about is a new vertical farm that's being built in Calgary Tower. The company responsible for that is AgriPlay, and joining me on today's episode is CEO Dan Houston. Dan has over 17 years of experience in commercial real estate. He's a partner in a company called A4 Systems, which looks for industry issues that can use their expertise in data and technology. They've started two companies in agriculture already so far, the first being Herd Whistle, which is a feedlot management system, and the second being AgriPlay, which is building vertical farms in commercial real estate spaces. AgriPlay's first big project after their distressed environment lab, which is where they've been testing all of this, is the Calgary Tower. Phase one of that project is 65,000 square feet of vertical farms starting operations here this coming September. But as you're about to hear, their vision for this stretches far beyond this starting point. Dan claims they already have agreements with wholesale buyers of the produce and plan to expand production considerably over the next year. Now, most of you have already heard the case for indoor farming versus outdoor farming. And if not, you can always check out previous episodes like, write them down if you'd like, 71, 146, 
185, 193, and most recently 307. I'll drop into the conversation here today, though, where Dan is explaining the gaps that they saw in vertical farming that they thought they could fill with AgriPlay. Farming and traditional agriculture, one of the problems is you could be a seventh generation farmer with the best understanding of how to grow crops with every possible nuance to how to make sure that you're getting the right yield and the rest of it. But you're still like 90% of what's going to happen is completely, what's the climate going to do? How much rain are you going to get? What's the wind and the conditions? How much sun are you going to get? Like none of that is in their control. And so to have a necessary resource like food, when there are technical solutions dependent on environmental factors that you can't control was always, I mean, from an outsider looking in, kind of crazy. So the logical solution is indoor farming, right? Or vertical farming, stacking inside where you've got a controlled environment. The downside though, is that there's primarily two forms of it. You've got containerized farming, which are the, you know, the containers, like the 40 footers, the 20 footers. That's roughly 44% of the market here in North America. And of those uh, containers, the reason they started that direction wasn't for scale or any form factor benefit. It was because back 15, 20 years ago, containers were coming one direction from China. And those containers coming in provided an opportunity to do an eco-friendly conversion of those existing one-way trailers into a vertical farm, an indoor farm that was perfectly logical at the time. But since then, one, China discovered, and the other exporting countries discovered that there's a market for trailers. So they make trailers now so that you're not reclaiming. And two, there's a lot of government regulations that prevent you from reusing a container. You have to have a new container in order to operate food out of it, largely. And then the other version of vertical farming are the large industrial facilities that, uh, that you read about all the time, where they, you know, typically they produce lettuce or leafy greens of some kind, maybe a one-off model crop, you know, like uh, tomatoes or what have you. But the problem with those is, again, they're enclosing a large area. And even though they're vertically stacking, they're limited in the land use that they have. So if, for example, you want to expand that facility because it's doing really well, you are very likely not to have extra space around your facility. So now you're forced to scale up by a larger module than you would normally. That forces you to do one of two things, have multiple large facilities in the same area, and then you're a larger distribution network, or you're basically going to oversize your facility to future-proof your export, but then you're risking what you're doing, and it's hugely capital expensive. So neither of those solutions, and they're both reliant on industrial properties to grow. So there's a place for all of it, obviously, but neither of them, from our perspective, really made sense in solving food security because you know, as you pump more money in to produce more product out of a larger facility, you have an exponential declining cost curve. So the more money it takes to produce less and less and less as an added benefit to that. Uh, for the containers, there's only so much container stacking that you can do. And the form factor of the buildings that you can go in, again, are industrial. And then this is where my commercial background comes from. In commercial real estate, in almost every market, there are, you know, office, retail, mixed use, residential, and industrial. And if you're in industrial, that is typically one of the hottest and most contested markets in any localized market. In Calgary, here is an example. The downtown office vacancy rate is like 33.7%, right? So one third of all the buildings is advertised as being empty. 
It's a lot more than that, but that's the advertise rate. If you're industrial in Calgary, that's 4.1% or less. If you're over 50,000 square foot facility, you will not find a building. So that's the market that every vertical farming company is trying to basically compete in. So you don't get any incentives. You're limited on what you can do. And if you decide to build a new facility, well, you have to invest a lot of resources in both time and cash because you have to figure out, well, okay, that's 18 months for me to figure it out and then potentially build that facility or more. Then that's going to be a huge capital expenditure and there's no incentives on the back end. So you have to raise a lot of cash to do that expansion and you better overbuild rather than underbuild because you don't want to build it. And then as it's operational realized, you need to double that. So when we looked at the whole situation, we said, well, the solution is to actually use everything that's available. Because if instead of being a specialized system for this kind of input, right, where I've got these kind of machines that build this amount of leafy greens or whatever, if you make a broad spectrum approach to it for both installation, snap in and snap out of a facility, there's only benefits to landlords to take you on. The capital expenditure based on the relationship between incentives and where you're going will always be better because you can go into anything in the market. And when you're actually operating, you can grow whatever the local community needs. We just dressed up the data analytics and the uh, data capture around it to make it easier. So roughly speaking, you're about 40 times more installable than any other system, but I can use incentives. So like one last example, there are buildings and examples in multiple markets, including Calgary, where almost entirely my CapEx is covered by incentives rather than any other cash. So I could start up without any cash being required. We just had to build that system from start to finish to accommodate multiple structures, which was not a easy task. But when we did it, all of a sudden everything fell into place. And now there's a real solution to scaling to meet food security. And so in that example, what type of real estate is that that they're offering those types of incentives? Uh, well, so right now, uh, office space downtown, right? Because you'd be crazy. You'd be an absolute nutball to try and go and put a vertical farm in a skyscraper. Thankfully, I'm a nutball. And so is my team. We're all a bunch of crazy people. And we enjoy going, yeah, we did that. We had to develop a lot of low power systems. But like in an office building downtown with a vacancy rate of one third marketed, right? Landlords downtown have a real issue because they don't have any ability to basically, in some of these buildings, there is no opportunity for them to capture a tenant, a regular tenant at all. And banks in some cases are saying, we're just not going to finance your building at all, period. And so now it's just a black hole where they can't get financing. They have no prospects for tenants. And it's not like they're coming back because if you can get, you know, uh, 13-year deal with two years of gross free rent and next to nothing on net rent, full turnkey build-out and your free furniture, and you're in an A-class building, what are you going to offer a tenant in a C-class building? Like, there's nothing that you could offer them to make them come back to that lower quality building. So that market has huge incentives. And, and here's the key. We made it so that you can snap in and snap out. Like, landlords don't have to consider this indoor farm as a permanent solution. So normally, if you were converting a building, you'd be converting the building, and once it was converted, it would forever be that thing. Like right now, there's a lot of conversions from office to residential, 
So they have to spend 271 bucks a foot or whatever it is. And then they convert the building over 24 months. And then from that moment on forever period, it is a residential building. So you better be really careful and certain that you want to do that. That's a problem that we have uh, with a lot of people that were considering us early on because they were like, well, I don't want to turn my building into an indoor farm forever because that's not a thing. So what we had to do was create the technology stack that allowed us to effectively be just a different kind of tenant. So our system snaps in and then it snaps out what they're done and all they're left when we're done is upgraded base building space, which they traditionally want and use anyway. And from a zoning standpoint, is there concern that like, hey, is indoor farming, you know, is that legal in a in an office zoned building? Yeah, I mean, there's there were some challenges at the front end to just kind of get the city on board. The city of Calgary's actually been really easy about it. By and large, no, there's not really any hard problems uh, with the zoning. It's more about the fact that most cities and both municipal and provincial level, when they're considering land use and zoning, they like to live in a box and everything within this box is okay. Anything outside of that box is a big concern. What we've done is basically figured out, this is not new for A4 either. We've done this before with a bunch of our oil and gas projects for regulations. So it was really easy. It's just a demonstrable way to show the metrics of this is what happens to the building. This is the loading on the building. This is how we net zero on our energy. Uh, this is the kind of system that we're using for our smart building systems. It's very simple. Ironically, the only thing that we're waiting on right now is uh, uh, they just have to walk through because uh, the city has to see it so that they can categorize it. But that's it. City's been incredibly supportive, actually. That's great. And so where, where are you now with the business as far as, you know, do you have farms that are already up and running or kind of where, where does it stand today? Yeah, so we've got our distressed environment lab here in Calgary. That's where I'm actually at right now. And then we have uh, the Calgary Tower, which is uh, phase one is about to open here in September. Phase two and three are going to be end of the year in uh, Q1. Uh, but the Calgary Tower, we are converting. So it'll be 65,000 square feet uh, with options to grow, I think, 120,000 square feet roughly. That'll put us up there in terms of vertical farm size. We like to call it elevated indoor farm. But I am currently in discussions with uh, you know five or six landlords for expansion. So I think by the end of the year, it's entirely possible that I'll be able to announce probably another million plus square feet of conversions. Uh, our goal is 2.8 million square feet converted within the next three years and a million square feet in Edmonton. So it'd be a 4 million square foot vertical farming. And, and, and I want to show, because... I can see a clear path to that. You know, a lot of people say that's crazy, but from my background, I can very easily see the parallel project management on that to make it really easy and snap and play. Our systems are not difficult to install. The construction is minimal. It's largely just demo of existing tenant improvements. So it's, you know, remove all this stuff, snap in the, uh, the underlying infrastructure, uh, which is power over ethernet based. And then you basically snap everything in, our brains go to work, and the system is up and running effectively as soon as you can cart it in. So it's not that difficult for us to do, and that's kind of the key. The showcase facility phase one that we've got going up, uh, and it'll be open September 1 for investors, stakeholders like landlords that we're talking to right now, government entities that wanted to see it. And so when they're walked through, they can see, oh, yeah, I see how you're just snapping in. That's really cool. And they can see that. And now their fears are abated because it's brand new. Like, it's weird and wild and wacky. So when they think about it, they're like, what do you mean you're growing, you know, tomatoes and watermelons inside an office space? And we converted some of the, 
the most soul-sucking office space that we could find. It is, uh, yeah, it's a real zero to hero kind of conversion that's gone on. And so, you know, with your system, obviously the kind of the lock into place uh, modular aspect of it is really important, you know, but but what about, you know, every, everything else as far as like the actual farming of this produce, is it kind of off the shelf type stuff you took from others or did you have to build this proprietary ground up type technology? So our typical desire is not to build stuff. We went through everywhere. We talked to like every, every position on the uh, stack, you know, LEDs, pumps, infrastructure management, uh, data management, automation, robotics, all that stuff. We talked to everybody. If we didn't have something that fulfilled our requirements, which is kind of how you build it, you, you build a model, you figure out what the requirements, at least for an MVP is going to be. And then you build to that requirements, but you're, you're inflexible on the requirements because anybody can do anything when there's no constraints, right? And like for the farming side of the equation, we have in-house, you know, if we got ideation and project management, firmware, hardware, you know, all the way to kernelite, then we've got roboticists, we've got advanced manufacturing experts, so we can do things really fast and we don't have to really wait. So our first version that'll be in the showcase will show a lot of the stuff that you can do manually. And then the automation comes in version two, which will be the residual of phase two and phase three and backfilling the, the remainder of our showcase facility once we're done. Most people, the problem that they have just in general is when you're trying to automate or you're trying to digitally transform a business, they try to boil the ocean. Right? So they try to do so much at the same time that you create an infinite number of fail points. And then if the system's not working, you have no real context to see and drive down into what it is that's not working. And farming's no different. So if you try and fix everything immediately and try to automate everything, could you do it? Yes. But the likelihood of you doing everything successfully all at once is pretty low. It's one of those situations where by going faster, you went a lot longer. So the way I like to look at it is, I don't know if you off-road, but there's a saying in off-roading, fast as possible, as slow as necessary, right? So if you're bogged in sand, you got to gun it because if otherwise you'll sink and you'll stall out. That's the same thing that we're doing. So we have deliverable milestones that we need to capture, right? We need to do the healthy, fresh produce. We need to make sure that in our case, we're Canada Gap certified, then Global Gap certified so that we meet all the health and requirements issues. We need that quality, we need that quantity, and then we're working on the price, which is fine. You have to do that first with people and then augment those people as they go in. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with everybody is the other side of that equation. One of the things that we tried to do is remove the, I'm going to say tribal knowledge. Like you've got a master grower and that master grower knows the ins and outs of all the fruits and vegetables. They can hear what they're thinking and stuff like that. And if you need someone like that for every installation, it's not scalable. So what we have is our system is intelligent. Imagine like a like a neural network that every light is connected to, every pump is connected to. So we're getting real-time data because we're data people. So we get all of that in real time and it adjusts the system naturally. That's just at a base level before any of the automation. That's just, that's old hat for us. So that's just something that's easy to install. But all of that information comes in, and then basically all of the understood knowledge from horticultural experts and the rest of that kind of, we're dumping into that system. So the system understands that. And now 
you don't need to be super smart. We've already done this with herd whistles. So in feedlot management, right, you've got a pen rider that's usually got decades of experience. They can see an animal in a pen of 200 animals, and they can say, that animal over there is not working right. Like, there's just something off about that animal. Pull that animal. But, like, that's a tribal knowledge uh, skill set that's built up over, you know, 20, 25 years. And you're not getting that labor replaced anymore because people are moving to urban centers from the rural no one really wants to sit and learn that that craft anymore. And so they were really suffering a huge problem with that. So with the herd whistle system, similar to the way that AgriPlay works, the herd whistle system just goes, hey, pull this animal in that pen. Don't ask why. There's something off about it. So the person only needs to be able to read and pull an animal. They don't need to have decades of experience. That's why that system's scalable. The same way that AgriPlay is going to have, hey, what are you growing? Cherry tomatoes. This is what you have to do. And on these days, you're going to have to do this. And this is an inspection report. And this is how it gets bagged. And that's what we're building in there so that it's scalable as well. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it sounds like you guys are built on this combination of hardware engineering and data, kind of being able to do that for clients and then started sort of hatching and incubating your own ventures, almost like a venture studio would. Yeah. Uh, we, we call it a cyber physical studio. And so AgriPlay follows the exact same operating parameters. Like we, we set ourselves up in a flat structure the same way, again, for scale, again, for productivity and, and managing each one of our programs has, uh, you know, unique projects. So if you're in your growing program, the growing program is separated into projects and a project management structure so that there's actual clear scope and defined goals. That allows us to really quickly iterate and get around challenges and cruxes solve those programs with limited cross-contamination between programs. So we're very efficient that way. But the, the four A's of A4 stand for acquisition, aggregation, analysis, and action. And we found that primarily aggregation, everybody had a sensor. Uh, they were just really expensive relative to what they were capturing. A lot of them were $10 solutions to $1 problems, right? Then you'd have the aggregation. Well, no one seemed to care about any security, which was a big problem. We've got backgrounds in crypto banking here. So we try hard to make sure that everything's secure. Analysis, everybody thinks that they're a data scientist now, just because they watch some 15-minute course. And a lot of that, it comes down to clean data. And garbage in and garbage out seems to be something that most people have forgotten. And then the action side was never a thing. People were basically building pretty dashboards to say, oh, look, your yield per acre is X. Or, you know, using our system, you'll get this dashboard to tell you when you're animals are doing this or doing that. You need to push action so that the user gets a benefit out of it, right? So in the case of AgriPlay, the system pushes what you're supposed to do next. So if there's a water leak, we treat it like gas. It's not like, hey, when you get a chance, mop up the water. Like, hey, there's gas leaking. When you get a chance, go out and see if you can clean that up. No, it's like, hey, if you don't clean that up, the building explodes or whatever. And so it pushes you like, hey, uh, Dan, you need to get up from what you're doing right now. And I've set up a work order and I'm going to keep yelling at you until you go over there and fix it. That escalation and exception protocol, that's how you get people to actually do active work. And that's a big problem with quote unquote innovative tech out in the field right now. A lot of groups, they stop at that dashboard because it's pretty and it's easily sellable, it's harder to explain that one step further. We originally were 
when we pulled it out in 2019, Adam and I were aiming, aiming at more of a software solution for our data background, but we realized really quickly that in today's world, no one's making stuff anymore. Like you really need to make stuff and understand how to make stuff well so that you can get around the niche markets that will trap you in expensive solutions that are not required. And I think that plagues vertical farming in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I could see that you can make that argument in a lot of, a lot of agriculture in general. Let's talk. I like the water example a lot and treating it a water leak like a gas leak. As someone's walking into a commercial real estate, I, I picture like elevators opening up and a floor of carpet cubicles, these like white panels on the top with the fluorescent, long fluorescent lights. That's what we're used to seeing. What does that look like after your system is installed? Um, and I think it's specifically with water, you know, a lot of that that I just described is not going to do well with the transpiration coming from from plants and the water that's inevitably going to get everywhere whenever you're dealing with, you know, with farming. Um, what do you have to do to make sure that the system is self-contained and that you're not just creating a mold problem for yourself? Well, there's a few things. So we go back to base building. What base building means. So every roughly 10 years, landlords will take all of the tenant improvements, all the walls, and they'll get rid of all of it and go back to the concrete. And so you'll have the concrete structure. You may or may not have T-bar, which is what you were talking with, the white ceiling tiles and the rest of it. Uh, and then basically they upgrade if they have to, any HVAC systems or what have you. And then they build out for a new tenancy. And they'll typically do that you know, at a high degree every 10 years because tenants require it and it's part of the process. And here's the sneaky thing about commercial real estate is most of that, if it's triple net, most of that conversion, they just roll back into the operating cost over 20 years. So the tenants end up paying for it without knowing it anyway. So what we do is we go, okay, so there's two ways that you can do it. If you use one of our retail solutions, so you just want to augment in an office. You don't necessarily want to convert the whole thing. You can snap in our systems. We've designed it to fit underneath the T-bar. So you can roll in the system, snap it in place. It becomes almost like a, like an art slash food exhibit for your people in your office, right? That is not what we're doing at the Cavalry Tower and for most of our facilities. What we do there is we, we tear everything back to base building. We get rid of the uh, T-bar. Uh, we install our Power Over Ethernet or POE net, network infrastructure, which is basically no different than, you know, a lot of tech companies. Uh, I know that you're, the audience can't see it, but you can. Is right above me that tray and the cable wire that's right there, that's a power over Ethernet system that we use. That allows you basically the, the nerve center for the entire system, for the brains of what's going on, to interact for both the building, because that's a key, and agri-play. So when we are done and we snap out, you have an upgraded base building condition that you can grow from with a smart building infrastructure. Like that's a net improvement in the building's capabilities when we move out. So we plug in and when we leave you're left with a higher better system to augment and use for your tenants and then we have a treatment protocol that we use to make sure that we're basically sealing off the room to manage the moisture and control and then from that point on after the system's up and running our systems are designed to encapsulate and prevent as much evaporation as possible transpiration is going to happen we operate within a standardized humidity range for the most part to make sure that we've got a standard vapor pressure deficit that we can control. 
and then the system automatically understands how much carbon dioxide's there, what are we using, what the pressure, humidity, relative humidity level is, uh, and then the system will automatically adjust or, or cause, depending on where you are at, because you don't need to do an expensive integration if you don't want to. Okay, you have to adjust your humidity this way, you have to do this kind of stuff. So you, you, we're always managing that to make sure that there's no buildup. One, there's no way for water to seep into the system because we've sealed it. Two, our treatment protocol prevents any water sippage. Our inspection protocol treats uh, water and nutrient solution like gas. So if there's any spills, it's immediately cleaned up. And then there's emergency uh, coring that we do to have drains where it's required. That was one of the key requirements for landlords. Like They need to make sure that when we're out after a 10-year lease or a 15-year lease, that there isn't any mold buildup or anything like that, because that would be detrimental to the value of the building, which we are trying to maintain. Okay. And how do the water and energy requirements differ? You know, if, I, if I'm if i a landlord, I'm like, well, okay, well, this sounds good, but like, what's going to be the difference in water and energy versus if I just had it in office building? Yeah. So the water use is not actually very high at all. We try to recycle as much as we can. In terms of like traditional agriculture, I mean, everybody's heard the benefits. You know, you can grow three to five times more food on 10% or less of the space, 98% less than traditional agriculture for water use. In terms of power, that was one of the big challenges that we had to solve because an office building looks huge, uh, but the power per square foot that they have is actually pretty light, right? Because they're used to people. So our system uses a power over Ethernet cable that allows us to push as a low power standard, which you don't even need electricians afterwards. And we had to build lights that allowed all of the things that we wanted, including full spectrum control and uh, multiple output. I mean, you need a lot of light indoors to grow anything anywhere. So we need to have that capability. And basically, we worked out that we were, we were about 289% more efficient per watt for light output, which we think is going to go up dramatically on the second version. So long and short is we use most of the power that's in a building. But in all the buildings, including the Calgary Tower, I have the ability to generate power on site as part of my lease. Now, this is boiling the ocean again. I already am in discussions with a bunch of people for some very interesting solar voltaic and wind generation technologies. That'll all be part of the process of installing and snapping in place. Basically, our goal is by the end of full installation, by 2026, we want to zero out our power consumption so that the majority, 80% is our threshold but hopefully 100% of every you know, watt coming out of the system that's required is being supplemented by offtake of uh, regenerative energy. Really interesting. Well, I know, I know you're not selling produce today, but I wonder about how you pencil out the economics of this. It makes sense to me that if you have a better supply-demand dynamic with commercial real estate than with industrial, you're going to get cheaper rents. But uh, the, the flip side of it is you won't get, like you said, that 50,000 square foot, you know, one standard building like you would maybe in industrial. So is there enough money in jalapenos and, and you know, lettuce and basil and whatever else you're growing to, to make this all worth it in the end? So I think right now I've vetted... Uh, 45 crops, not uh, the varieties. There, there's multiple varieties in those that we've got kind of set up for selling when we want to. The natural inclination for most people to go around the operating cost of a building, and they say, well, an industrial building is only like five bucks a foot. An office building is like 18. So 
everybody that's just looking at it from like a face value, they go office buildings, even if they're giving you a $4 rate, that sounds like way more expensive than industrial. Except the industrial doesn't include usually your utilities. It doesn't include your security. It doesn't include the management. If you actually go into the lease on what those operating costs work out to be, you almost have an apples to apples. As soon as you start adding on all the stuff that you pay outside of your lease as a tenant in an industrial world. So they kind of even out. The second thing though is, and this is actually, if you think about it, if I've got multiple floors versus one floor, that means I've got multiple controlling rooms that all can run on their own HVAC schedule relative to a bigger space that I have to go through very expensive and complicated HVAC systems that zone control in an open air environment. So I can actually easily separate individual grow rooms to make each crop more efficient for growing. And a perfect example that if I was going to grow lettuce, I I don't really want to right now, but if I was to grow lettuce, you're not going to grow that at 22 degrees Celsius, 65% humidity. Strawberries, the same thing. Strawberries, you know, they're more of like the 18, 18 and a half degrees kind of cool level with, you know, somewhere in the one VPD range. So you want to control that environment on that floor. And so monocultural on a single floor actually is very profitable. When we're actually going into building out the spaces, like the the economics for what you're going to grow are kind of known in advance. So if you use like a litmus test, and I'm not doing this anymore because I've actually got wholesalers like around the world that we're talking about for large scale offtake. But the goal is local and community. So what I'm doing right now is I'm negotiating a, an open-ended export mandate with a large international group that we're going to snap onto our license so that licensees, when they're trying to establish cash flow at the front end, they don't have to worry about the risk of figuring out from their local wholesalers who they're going to work with. They can snap in the cash flow right away with, hey, if you grow up to four container loads of watermelon, we will pick that up for X. And now you know immediately that you're going to be profitable because you know what that value is. Well, certainly a lot of interesting points made there. Thank you so much to Dan Houston for being on the show. Now, I realize that this project is early. There's still a lot of questions that need to be answered here regarding the farming and the marketing of this crop. And this is a little bit on the earlier side of the stories that I would normally feature here on the show. But I do think this idea of like commercial real estate arbitrage is really cool and something I hadn't heard before. I also did ask Dan about pest management, which he said they have obviously clean room protocols and they are soilless. So that adds a different dynamic, but uh, also something that uh, you have to troubleshoot with the various nuances that come with farming. Thank you so much to Dan. Learn more about what they're doing over at agriplay.com. We'll make sure, of course, we link to that in the show notes. That's it for today. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.